0: James J. Robinson, whose debut solo exhibition on Golden Days is being presented as part of Photo Twenty Twenty Two, the photography festival at Hillvale Gallery in Brunswick. James, welcome to Triple R. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Richard.
0: Now, there's quite a few things to unpack and explore in this exhibition, and the I guess the first uh, kind of contact point for people will be that this is uh an exploration of nostalgia but the dangers of nostalgia in terms of when we think about the past and i've seen this just recently on a facebook group i'm a member of with people going oh i miss melbourne back in the 1930s it was such a a lovely city it was so beautiful then i don't like it now i'm kind of like it wasn't a lovely city for a lot of people
1: absolutely yeah um I think that there's a danger when we go back and romanticise the past. I think it's something that we naturally do as humans. I mean... You know, we always look back at our childhood, and we always like to look at through rose-colored glasses and find different ways to pick out all the the best memories. Um, I think the danger of that is that when we still have systems in place and capitalist systems and systems that oppress people and marginalise people, when they are the people that are in charge of the media and when they romanticise the past, it means that we forget a lot of history. Um, so, on golden days is a is my way of unpacking that,
0: and in particular, kind of unpacking and. Uh, presenting the people who were perhaps left out of of stories and left out of nostalgia.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. I think the big moment for me when trying to unpack these things was I was watching this film by Wes Anderson, Moonrise Kingdom, which is a beautiful, very pastel version of looking at the past and was set in 1965. And it's really interesting looking at that film and looking at the way that it tries to glamorise the 60s and me even responding to that film by being like, wow, that's so beautiful, they're listening to Francois Hardy, they're dancing on the beach, like, I wish I lived there. But then actually reflecting, I was like, wait, 1965, that's the black liberation movement happening in America at the same time. So we're looking at the past through this very specific lens, and I think in small doses that's a beautiful thing, and it's a nice way to remember the the past and a nice way to anesthetize current temp- contemporary anxieties. Um But when we're forgetting and we're erasing histories and that's when it kind of becomes a problem in a more industrial scale, when there's films that are trying to do the same thing, there's TV shows, there's books, there's music, and when everything kind of comes from this white lens, it gives us this image of the past which is quite harmful.
0: So you've recreate well not recreated you've created a series of images which reflect uh reflect the past with there's a, there's a cowboy for example mm-hmm. there's uh images that recall the golden age of hollywood but you've created these through a queer lens and also drawing upon your own filipino background as well
1: yeah that's right I think that there was uh, a press within me to when I was recreating the past to be like, no, there was. there's stories of oppression back there and there's all of these like things and, and awful experiences from marginalized groups that I want to include. But rather than taking the angle of trying to represent all of these awful histories, I wanted to take the same irony that happens when White Lens looks back at, at the past and try and show it with glamour and with fun rather than trying to focus on all the negative things. It's really interesting because we've also been discussing the um, Europe the Justice Commission that's happening at the moment when we're looking at Indigenous history and the way that Indigenous history has been forgotten in a lot of ways. One of the beautiful things about it is that while stories about the stolen generation are coming out of it, there's also really beautiful stories about an old culture coming out of it as well. So I think looking back at the past, I don't only want to be looking back at all the awful things. There's so much beauty in the past of marginalized groups as well. And so I think trying to amplify that in my photography was one of the key things I was trying to do.
0: Yeah. You used the word glamour a moment ago, and I wanted to pick up on that because one of the things that struck me about the images is you're clearly drawing upon your work uh, and your practice as a commercial photographer Mm. to bring that kind of glamorous, golden kind of aesthetic to the images. Mm. Uh, But at the same time, you've kind of cast, I think it's what, approximately 80 people from different Asian kind of cultures and backgrounds Mm. to be your models and the actors in the work. Work. So, mm-hmm. And it's a palpable reminder not only of what was missing in the past when mm-hmm. we look back at the past, but what we are still often not seeing today as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think COVID was a really big turning point for me in my career because I have been working in this commercial field for quite a long time and I've been working in the fashion world, especially in America, and entered this space where I didn't really think that my work should exist. I think that my work unpacks a lot of issues around oppression, but then at the same time for my work to be used... To uphold this capitalist structure which is selling people things that they don't really need especially after a year like COVID I can't really like continue to work in that way and feel like I'm satisfying the ethical side of myself so taking all these things that I learned from that world and applying it to a more community-led project was really the heart of everything and you also mentioned process in there and I think that For this shoot, the process of taking the photos is just as important as what the final exhibition is going to be because we're bringing together all these people from different backgrounds and I'm bringing together my community in Melbourne and we're all working together and the actual just process of dressing up my friends and doing really beautiful makeup on all of them and putting them in crazy hair, like everyone taking selfies on set and having all this food to nourish people, like the actual act of just taking the photos and the process was just an important part of the artwork as the actual
0: final exhibition will be. You, in terms of the kind of the outcome uh you just talked about the set for example and mm. so sort of, you know some of those images which look like what uh i don't know they could be advertising for airlines from the the 1950s for example we've got bouffant hair and mm. uh, must have been a pretty complex process not only to ensure that everybody felt safe and connected and welcomed as part of the shoot but finding the costumes finding Mm. the the locations to shoot in Mm. did you actually have to construct sets at any stage
1: yeah we did we shot one very massive musical day where we constructed a sound stage we had really beautiful team of stage designers and production designers and florists coming up to like build this like old Hollywood set and that was that was so much fun and yeah again that was part of the process of bringing everyone together and creating these stages and things that usually would happen in this commercial context or within this Hollywood context but subverting that and giving people access to that world was definitely part of the process but I had so many collaborators on board that helped me with the styling and the hair and the makeup and being able to give them the space to interpret the brief themselves and be like I want to do this hair like can we take it this far or is that too much I'm just like I'm stepping back and leaving you the space to put your own creativity into it because I think that a collaborative set is the most important part of working and
0: creating beautiful work. Which is, I have to say, is lovely to hear because art is so often... It, visual art can be a very isolated solo practice. Right. Other art forms are much more collab- collaborative, but some of the, the the best work seems to come from the the, the creative spark when different minds are coming together.
1: Yeah, there's there's been a really massive shift in the photography industry. Like when I was working in New York, and especially at the beginning, I was doing behind-the-scenes videography work on sets with some really big photographers who have existed like the echelon of what photography is and, and the history of photography. And being on those sets and seeing these egos come out and seeing them talk down to the assistants and send people outside so they can have one-on-one time with the talent, I was just looking at these things and I was just like, My process is so different because I think that photography and and the process of creating art should be something that's nurturing. If I'm bringing together these people, and especially if they're going to be letting me take photos of them and showing my interpretation of who they are, I want them to have the space to feel like they can actually be themselves. And that goes back to making sure that on set everyone has the space to say something, making sure that everyone's well fed, making sure that everyone's not too stressed. Um, and to me, getting the best photos comes from those places. And also to me, sometimes that means sacrificing the best photos from what I think is the best photos, because I think that people should be more comfortable and my ego should be taken out of the equation.
0: If you've just tuned in, I'm chatting with visual artist James J. Robinson about his debut exhibition, his debut solo exhibition, On Golden Days, which is showing at the Hillvale Gallery at uh, 43 to 45 Edward Street, Brunswick, uh, from tomorrow. uh, And then with an opening reception on Saturday evening, running through until the 22nd of May. Now, given that we're talking about the past and the power of the past and the power of representation... Am I right in thinking that one of the sparks for this, this kind of body of work was reading a book about the Vietnam War and who controls history? and yeah. who uh, It's the victor who writes the story, for example, which means so much is left out.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, Viet Thanh Nguyen's novel, um, Nothing Ever Dies. It's a really beautiful unpacking of the Vietnam War from the perspective of the Vietnamese diaspora when he was unpacking and going back to Vietnam to study this book, he was just looking at the ways that the victors tend to rewrite history. And I went through a very big phase working on a project a few years ago where I was watching all these films about the Vietnam War, specifically from the perspective of the American side. Um... And he was unpacking the way that memory can be used as an impressive force to make people think about the past in a particular way, which is going to always benefit the victors of a war. So reading that book was one of the first ways that I entered into the conversation around the nostalgia industry and thinking about the ways that that doesn't only happen in the context of a war, but happens in a lot smaller and more subtle, nuanced ways in our culture.
0: So in some ways, you're kind of you're not only, I guess, reclaiming space, but you're actively subverting a, a, a dominant narrative. You're taking control of that and creating your own, kind of, your own history. You're rewriting history.
1: Exactly, and rewriting history is what tends to happen from the white perspective, so why can't it happen from the queer Asian perspective as well? Um, and, yeah, as, as I mentioned, like, the whole process was part of that as well, so all of our profits from the shoot are going to pay the rent. And we were very generously supported by the Australian Council of the Arts for this project. And so the idea that we've all come together, created this project, and at the end, we're going to be funneling money from this Australian government body into a grassroots organization is just part of the whole process of what the shoot is.
0: If people want want to get along and see James's work, Hillvale Gallery, 43 to 45 Edward Street, Brunswick, Uh, opening from tomorrow and running through until Sunday the 22nd of May with uh, a bit of a shindig on Saturday from 6 till 9pm. You can go to hillvalegallery.com.au for details. The exhibition on Golden Days is part of Photo 2022, a celebration of photography. More info about that at photo.org.au. And you can find out more about James and his work at jamespdf.com. James J. Robinson, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Richard. Triple R.
0: I'm joined on the line by actor Harriet Gordon Anderson, who is playing Hamlet in Belle Shakespeare's Hamlet, which is on at Arts Centre Melbourne from, uh, let's see, from today, the 28th through until the 14th of May. Harriet, what's it like to take on one of the most famous roles in Western theatre history? (laughs)
2: Um, It's daunting, Richard. It's it's daunting and it's fun. Um, It's really well written. It's an amazing play and an amazing part. And in that respect... Uh, I guess it makes my job easy um, to yeah inhabit this story is is an easy one because it's the words are doing it all for me and they 're really good words
0: <laughs> beyond the words themselves let 's talk about the the mystique of Hamlet as a play because it 's been referenced. Uh, in popular culture, like there's a a scene in Withnil and I where one of the characters kind of miserably declaims, I will never play the Dane. The fact that the play... I'm
2: so glad you referenced that. That's (laughs) one of my favourite films, Richard. The fact that
0: a character like Uncle Monty is referencing the significance of Hamlet in a film like Withnil and I talks to the fact that the play has surpassed it, just the world of theatre. It's it's become a cultural touchstone, a cultural icon yeah. in ways. Why do you think that is? Is it just the words? Is it something more?
2: No, it's more. It's more. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose I didn't mean to make light of it. It is, it is a, a huge... Thing to step into. There is a notoriety around it and that can be that has definitely been something to overcome in rehearsals and in performance um, particularly with maybe the most famous line in English language, to be or not to be. That soliloquy, I mean, that's the first line of a soliloquy that comes out of nowhere, and I need to just eyeball the audience and get through the process of saying those lines while quite often they mouth them back to me um, or, uh, or people say them out loud or mutter them under their breaths. Everyone wants to be a part of this... Uh, notorious piece of language and poetry. And, I, yeah, I don't think that's for nothing. I don't think it's just because it is well-known. It's got to be for a reason. And um, I have found in the process of delving into this play and this character that this poetry does go some length to trying to capture some part of the human spirit that is so difficult to put into words the obsession with love, uh, with duty, with trying to be a good person and do the right thing despite causing a great deal of pain and feeling a great deal of pain, uh, self-loathing. There's so many things that I don't think are trapped in the past, so many things that I think are, you know, I mean, it's such a such a boring argument to make, it's such a... Um, scholarly argument to make, you know, that Shakespeare is still relevant and has universal themes. But there is something in this text that we keep coming back to that, uh, you know, we reach for art when we're feeling things. We reach for a sad song or a sad movie or something to put expression into the way we feel. And this just happens to be an incredible piece of art that goes, yeah, as I said, some lengths into capturing the intricacies and the inconsistencies of those feelings of being alive, I suppose.
0: It's a part that is traditionally played by men. What kind of conversations did you and Bell Shakespeare's Peter Evans, who's also directing the play, have about you taking on the role? What, what reasons did he give for wanting a woman to play the role?
2: Uh, yeah, we we spoke about this at great lengths, obviously, um, at the beginning of the process, which is now nearly three years ago. Um, We've been delayed by COVID, obviously, as so many productions have. Um, And, yeah, uh, you can't really shy away, I suppose, from gender being an aspect of this production. We spoke about... um, the inherent misogyny within the text. Hamlet is not a play about misogyny, but there are misogynistic aspects of it. And that shows itself most clearly when Hamlet himself is put under pressure or he feels uh, threatened or... um, Yeah, like he's in a bind. he throws himself into railing against the feminine. He... um, I think it stems from obviously growing up in an extremely patriarchal culture. Uh, his father, He is grieving the death of his father at the beginning of the play and no one around him is acknowledging it. His mother is not acknowledging it, she has married very quickly and everyone is telling him not to cry and not to grieve, tis unmanly grief. And so toxic masculinity is his bread and butter. and. As a young, deep-feeling person who is deeply loving and wants only to grieve his father and connect with the people around him with emotion and words, he is alienated. And so... Uh, we we see that play out in a young person growing up who, you know, spouts this misogynistic hatred. Frailty, thy name is woman. I must, like a whore, unpack my heart with words. Like, every time he hates himself, he uses feminine language, and he is killing the woman inside him because he has been given no tools to deal with grief and emotion in a patriarchal society. And so that aspect of the play... I find, and I know that Pete and contemporary audiences that we've spoken to have found, is difficult to watch. Like, we've seen it a million times. We've seen in so many art forms historic, patriarchal men railing against women. And, yes, there is beautiful poetry and amazing reasons to continue to see historic texts, but I personally find... A wall comes up for me in those moments when I'm just meant to believe or go along with or not feel enraged or uncomfortable Mm. that women are being humiliated and it's not talked about um, or being hurt or endangered. And so those, those moments become really interesting when they're coming out of the mouth and the body of a female actor. By no means do we want my gender as an actor to overshadow or play much of a part in the character. He is a male character. I am playing a male character. But there's just that other layer underneath that we hope the audiences can kind of feel working alongside that, I suppose. Yeah. does that make sense it, because I am not a beneficiary of the patriarchy there is hopefully less discomfort and less just boring repetition of men hurting women I'm sorry I don't mean to speak not boring and dangerous
0: I absolutely yeah. know kind of where you're coming from <laughs> the, the having there is something about some of the classic works of of the artistic canon theater opera and so forth where you're just like oh I I can't watch uh, a woman being murdered again. I can't... There, there, as you say, a wall goes yeah. up sometimes when you see stuff. And so seeing yeah. uh, Kate Mulvaney as Richard Third in the Bell Shakespeare production, which I think was back in 2017, for example, again, um, a female mm. actor playing a male role, uh, and it allowed us to see something different in the character. And Kate's dramaturgy also then kind of bringing in elements of some of the other Shakespearean plays meant that I was suddenly... Kind of uh, the, the sense of empathy and sympathy and sadness I had for Richard the Third in that production, for example, weeping at the end of the play, um, because mm. I had suddenly seen why he had become a monster uh, and again kind of mm. shaped by the patriarchy into being unfeeling and monstrous with all the added complications that Richard the Third has because of the the way he comes into the world kind of uh. so bringing all of that. To, to Hamlet as well, who is a young man. It's often something we forget, I think. Mm. So many productions of Hamlet are played by middle-aged men, for example, so being reminded yeah. that we are seeing a passionate young university student, uh, it means that we will hopefully as an audience be watching you and this production with very different eyes.
2: Yeah, that's our hope as well, Richard. Yeah, it's definitely a focus of our production. Um, He is, you know, and it's stated, Polonius says in, you know, the second or third scene, believe so much in Hamlet that he is young and with a larger tether, may he walk than may be given you. So already he's speaking to his daughter, Ophelia. Hamlet is young, he's boisterous, he's reckless, and also he's given privilege that you are not as a woman in this society. You know, it's all there in the text. And so... Um, this is, yeah, not some groovy contemporary lens we're putting on top of this thing. It's just something that we have, like, uh, are shining a little bit more of a light on that's within the text that um, I think people are finding really, really accessible and exciting, and I know that I do. Um, And I also have always found Hamlet to be a deeply androgynous character, and I think it cracks him open a little more to get rid of the... um, you know, one particular person from society must play this particular role, and and it's just maybe you know a, more of a, a human and androgynous experience, um, which I'm I'm all for.
0: To change tack for a moment, you just used the word groovy a moment ago. Let's talk about the fact that the, this
2: production <laughs> I'm so
0: has a '60s aesthetic to it.
2: Yes, it does. Um, that that is. Um, uh, peter in in his in his sort of interpretation of this this our production of it he wanted it to feel very nostalgic um, he sees this play as a memory play as a nostalgic play that um, uh, you know is is about looking back at the past when things were better which um, I think the 1960s encapsulates really well because it's not, we're not going so far back into garb. We're not trying to put it into a contemporary setting because I think particularly for the female characters, characters it can be very difficult to um, justify a lot of what you're saying um, in a contemporary lens. There, there is definitely still a very strong social structure at play within this text. And so to take it back a few generations um, helps that and makes some of those things make more sense, you know, women having a certain role, men having a certain role, etc. But also um, it was a time when royalty was still glamorous and was still had that celebrity and untouchable status, and that's really important to our production. It is about the Danish royal family, and it is a very kind of a, fly on the wall, look into the, the pressured life going on in the domestic of this extremely notorious, famous family. Um, and so that he- is helped by the 1960s um, setting as well. And, and yeah, also just we have Super 8 footage of young Hamlet um, uh, played throughout the show, you know, again, to, to connect to... As you were saying about Richard, this is a young person who wasn't born hating women or fearing women or fearing himself. He has been made that way. And, and so to sort of it, it deepens the tragedy for me, I think, to have happiness and happier times and when Hamlet Sr., the father, was still alive as something that Hamlet carries with him throughout the plays, the memory of his father. And so memory is, is a really strong part of this production.
0: I'm really looking forward to seeing this new production of Belle Shakespeare's Hamlet at Arts Centre Melbourne. It uh, kicks off today and runs through until the 14th of May. You can check out... uh bellshakespeare.com.au for details and you can book at artscentremelbourne.com.au to see Bell Shakespeare's Hamlet, the title role being played by Harriet Gordon Anderson. Harriet, thank you so much for speaking with us. I could talk to you for another half hour at least about the themes of the play, (laughs) the the different aspects of the production. I had a long chat a couple of years ago with Anna Treglow and the designer and there's so much more we could talk about, but we've run out of time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: My pleasure, Richard. Thank you very much.
0: You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Back in 2020, in September 2020, uh, the Australian theatre community lost the playwright, director, dramaturg, and friend to many, Aidan Fennessy. Aidan's new work is being staged by the Melbourne Theatre Company. It's called the Heartbreak Choir and it's been described as... uh, a joy-filled snapshot of a devastated community learning how to heal. I suspect it will be a balm for many of Aidan's friends that were in the audience. It's directed by uh, Peter Houghton, who joins me in, uh, on the line now. Peter, good morning.
3: Good morning, Richard. Thanks for having me.
0: A pleasure. You were a friend of Aidan's. You worked with him. Uh, uh, he directed you uh, and more. Tell us uh, a little bit about Aidan for those who didn't know him, and about the, the the kind of plays that he wrote.
3: Yeah, well, it was kind of fun. I mean, I I did so many shows with Aidan, and interestingly, in, in all sorts of different weird roles. Actually, you know, sometimes he'd direct me as an actor. I have directed him as an actor, he directed my plays, I directed his um and you know and like all creative relationships it's um it it, it, it um' that go on for that long there was a sort of chemistry there I suppose that um, was a bit more about us as people perhaps than as artists so we were you know we shared a lot of kind of many sense of humor to be honest was the, <laughs> probably the biggest glue in our relationship um but he was for me he was kind of you know what I loved about agents plays, particularly he the plays that he wrote over the last 10 years or so, was um, was just this democratic kind of perspective, really, where he sort of ennobled all characters on stage and, you know, tried not to take sides as much as visibly possible and let people kind of rip chunks off each other to see what was underneath and um, and not kind of settle for a sort of simplistic, you know, um, polemical kind of view of the world, I guess. And I really love that about his... His stuff he was he was secretly weaving a kind of logic behind that of course about the things that he believed in and, and valued but but uh, i think what, what audiences are responding to in this play particularly is a kind of um is a bit of, is more of a clean slate on characters you know so that the so that the um, audience can make up their own minds about them rather than having that driven by an unseen hand and and it's a it's a cunning art that it's a it's a sort of you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of skill of a good dramatist, I think, to sort of allow an audience to feel that they're making their own decisions. Yeah. And, um, and he's sort of, you know, he's, he's very present in the work as well. I mean, there's a sort of... You know, Aidan was a very working-class kid when he grew up who brought that sort of um, ear to his plays, you know, the kind of genuine ear for dialogue um that you know comes from outside the city centre and that sort of stuff and that hilarious kind of idi- idiomatic sort of regional and suburban sort of um, vernacular that's kind of right through this play and such a kind of joy to hear it again in, in a theatre. Um, but yeah, mainly I'd say his kind of heart and his comedy are the kind of driving sort of ideas behind his work. He's a kind of I wouldn't say he's a you know great kind of intellectual writer or, or someone throwing out massive ideas, he's, he's doing he's doing all of that kind of structural stuff, really, by, by connecting with people on an emotional level and on a, and on a comedic level, and, and this is really, I mean, I'm so glad that this is the play that he wrapped us, actually, is his last play, because it's so, it, it, to me, it typifies everything that was you know, great about him as a person and, and as an artist. It's, it's, a, uh, it's such a celebration of, of friendship and you know, and, um, and community and 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 also the theatre. Frankly, it's it's a you know there's a little play within the play going on there about a better community choir that's sort of struggling to survive after a schism. And um, and so of course it it has all the all the kind of tropes of the play within the play type comedy. You know, with its sort of tensions around you know, will it or won't it work and you know, all that sort of stuff that I love so much. You know, it's kind of fun. so it's really it feels like. A theatre play, without being self-consciously, so you know, it's,
0: yeah. a, it's a it's a joy really. The yeah. the notion of um, exploring a community choir and one that has, as you say, there's been a schism. We have a choir who've split from yeah. the other choir they were involved with. That is a is a something which just instantly uh, sets up opportunity for drama, but also resonates as incredibly truthful as well. Anybody who's worked in community theatre, community choirs, community organisations generally knows that there are strong personalities and that sometimes organisations, like one person leaves and an organisation falls apart or kind of two strong personalities come on board and we get a schism. We get somebody splitting off and kind of uh, setting up, I don't know, the judicial. In People's Front, or whatever it may be. Um, <laughs> sorry about the Monty Python reference, they're ingrained in me. Um, but the idea then of adding music to the production to kind yep. of bring in uh, an extra layer of emotion and drama is a beautiful one.
3: Yes, yeah. Well, you kind of, um, I mean, I, I uh, to be honest, I, I knew very little about that side of his life. He, um, you know, when he got sick, and before he got sick, actually, he he joined this community choir, Pagan Angels, um, which is a community choir based up where he lives in Brunswick. And um, and he, uh, you yeah, know, he, he'd sort of slink off there without really telling anybody and go into a world that was kind of, you know, quite atypical for Aidan in a way he was such a professional theatre maker. But, of course, that was a, a truly amateur for the love of environment. And, and he just, I think, he kind of really relished that sort of lack of, um, you know, professionalism, for want of a better word, that lack of slickness, that lack of, you know, presentation-orientated sort of um, performance, and just doing something purely for the love of it. Um, but, of course, he, you know, being a writer, of course, he also had his ideas picked up for all the funny kind of, um, yeah, you know, it does go on, as you say, inside any kind of organisational framework where personalities tend to kind of, you know, run off in various directions, different ideas about what the thing should be, and... Um, and he he sort of mined a lot of that. I think. I mean, actually, his choir came along the other night and they loved it. And you know, and also heard him strongly in the work. I think. And then went out into the foyer afterwards and spontaneously started singing in the foyer. Oh. It was such a yeah, it was kind an amazing thing actually. And I missed it unfortunately because I was giving notes backstage. But the, our understudies had gone out to kind of have a break, and they, a few of them got them on their phones the sort of show that turned in, it was such a kind of... I mean, I just love that about singing, you know, we're getting so many... In the previews, we're just getting so many choirs coming along who are just loving the, the whole event, and we're, just, and we're working with community choirs for the last sort of scene of the play who come in and lend us their skill and talent and voices and stuff to kind of hit the, the sort of high point at the end of the play, and it's just... Um, for me, you know, I've never really done musical theatre or, or worked with live music at all, really. And so I've, I've got a musical director, Vicky Jacobs, who's you know very experienced. She's sort of come off shows like Moulin Rouge and Come From Way and that sort of thing. And she's also a chorister who runs all the Melbourne Glee Choirs. And, uh, and so she's done all the organisational stuff of, of booking our choirs, but also working with our cast. And she's just done such a stunningly beautiful job, I think, because it's all you know it's all unaccompanied a cappella singing, and it's really yeah it's just that straight to the heart kind of simple. Um, Trade route to kind of emotion. I think that sort of you know that that sort of unadorned singing can can bring, and it's it's such a joy. And he kind of um, and he sort of. And I think that schism thing. You know, he if he's making a point in the play, I guess the one he's making is that you know you can you can go with schism all you like. You can keep breaking down organisations like that until they perfectly fit your view of the world. But ultimately, that's not the task of a democracy. It's to try and accommodate a clamorous. A series of disagreeing voices in a way and see so if you can find some kind of common ground and, and that's, the, that's the metaphor of harmony, I suppose. You know, the, the voices may be different, but, they, but if, they, if there's some way of making them work together then you can achieve a hopefully pleasing outcome. Yeah. You know, but um, but i try not to hit that nail too hard. You know, it's not a message-based play. It's, it really is a, a kind of, um, yeah, community story and, a, and, a, and heavily
0: character-driven, I would say. I love the fact that there will be kind of, I think there's something like 13 choirs uh, getting involved, yeah. uh, Western health singers comprised of health workers, yeah. the Choir of Opportunity, yeah. um, the Latrobe Valley Community Choir, uh, and so yeah. many more uh, to, to kind yeah. of, as you say, to bring in that kind of emotional Kind of a moment at the, at the close of the play, but yeah. also the fact that Aidan had written and explored music in his work before uh, What Rhymes With Cars yeah. and Girls, for example, a, yeah. another MTC production. So the idea of music was certainly not unfamiliar to him as a, as a playwright, and as you say, nor is comedy and nor is drama, and it feels like they've been fused beautifully together in this work, so it's a very fitting final play.
3: Yeah, no, thank you, Richard. I mean, it's really yeah. It was. I mean, it's it's funny um, luck and chance like that, isn't it? Um, I mean, it's sort of he could have left us a bitter and twisted political. (laughs) Could have accidentally left us some miserabilia or something. But it was kind of. I mean, I think you know. To be honest, he knew what he was going through when he wrote this. Um, And you know, as as probably happens, I guess can can happen. It's not always the case, but um, yeah, he was starting to notice all the all the beautiful things about life, I think, you know, and, of course, as you're, as you're dying and he had two years to kind of think about this following his diagnosis, and um, all sorts of people came out of the woodwork and reconnected with him. And I think he was reminded, actually, and, I mean, you know, we're, we live a very busy lives these days, don't we, you know, running around the city, and even, even close friends can see each other rarely, and, and, and you can sometimes feel when you're on your own that, you know, our, our friendship connections when when Aden passed away, Richard, you wrote a beautiful piece for Art Hub, you know, and um, and I don't know you very well, you know, we've kind of bumped into each other a few times over the years, and but it was such a, I thought you did a, a glorious job of kind of emphasising people's kind of experience of Aden, you know, and I think that's what he was kind of feeling really as he as he went through that process was just like, oh wow, I thought that was just a passing connection or a or a vague acquaintance or whatever, it's like. No, I actually did mean something to that person, and something got passed along there. And um, yeah, and there's, there's opportunities like that all around us. I think to connect with people and find meaning in, you know, even apparently passing sort of interactions, and um, and that's what he, you know, that's what he's kind of got into this play. I think is just the sort of the importance of friendships and and you know, obviously love and connection in our lives. And it's um, yeah, it's kind of just been an absolute joy actually. And I've been strangely i usually a bit of a nervous nelly when I get into the last couple of weeks of a show, but I just felt this strange sense of calm about it all as well, you know, in the sense that it, it will be what it is. And, um, and you know, so it's kind of... Yeah, it's been, a, it's been a great project to be involved with, thankfully, apart from the COVID
0: interruptions, of course. Of course. It was originally <laughs> yeah. supposed to be staged in 2020, so yes. I, I, yes. I yeah. wanted to ask, um, given your... Your friendship with Aidan—how important is it yeah. for you to be directing this play and to make sure that you get it right and that you do, kind of not only the script but your friend justice?
3: Yes, yes. Well, it was kind of there was an unfinished element to this, of course, too, because he got he got caught out. You know, he just couldn't do any more work on it towards the end. Uh, and I had a number of conversations with his partner over about you know what sort of license do we have here to kind of do that because it's tricky, you know. And um, and of course, I don't want. On my voice or anyone else's voice heard anywhere in the writing, it's, you know. So, so it was going back over other things that he'd written earlier drafts, but uh, making sure that uh, yeah. the words are his and you know, his intentions on it and all that sort of stuff. Um, so, probably, uh, so I probably did have a unique sort of opportunity. You know, I'm glad it was me, otherwise, because I didn't have that you know, ability, with, as a result of the friendship, to sort of get inside that stuff a bit more. Uh, and and until I knew him, I think I mean you could. I mean I would hope that this play has other lives. You know, and other directors do engage with it down the track. Um, but I think for the first season, it was sort of yeah, it was kind of yeah. I mean we we were talking while he was in his bed there, you know, about um, about how you know, how it should work and stuff. And whenever I've worked with him in the past, he's been quite a present writer. You know, I've had him sort of sitting on my shoulder, which has been used. You know, some people get annoyed by that, and I sometimes get annoyed by that if a writer. Of interest into the rehearsal room, but you know, I that was certainly a useful thing for me with his other work, and, um, and so I was slightly nervous about you know not having that resource with this, and I, it was kind of on my shoulders a bit. But, but as, I, as I say, it was um, you know maybe he's hanging around somewhere because I just got this sort of sense of calm, and um, I always believed in the play. I think I always I always kind of knew it would work with an audience, and you know, having seen it in front of for preview audiences now. You know, I was right to believe that it's just a. It's an absolutely audience-focused piece that's, that's um, you know it leaves people crying and laughing and doing all the things I think that a kind of a transformative. Piece of theatre can do. It's it's sort of just absolutely hitting those buttons. It's funny as hell, but it's also you know it's, it's very truthful and well observed and, um, and 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 kind to its characters. You know, so even when they're being unkind to each other, so it's sort of yeah. To have gotten through it in wood without, um, we've had actors with COVID. I've been directing from hotel rooms. It's been as messy as COVID can make it. But, um, but we're almost there. Opening night tomorrow. Yeah,
0: yeah. Opening night tomorrow night. Almost final there. preview tonight. So if you yeah. want to get along and see the Heartbreak Choir, the final. Uh, play from the late Aidan Fennessy, directed by my guest Peter Houghton. Uh, it's being presented by the MTC on until the 28th of May uh, at the South Bank Theatre in the Sumner. Uh, and you can book by going to the MTC website, mtc.com.au, to get tickets to see. The Heartbreak Choir, I suspect there will be plenty of tears and hopefully plenty of laughs in the theatre as well tomorrow night at its opening night. Peter Houghton, thank you so much for joining me on the program today. Thank okay. no, you. good on you Richard. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the art, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and if you have any questions or feedback feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.